You are listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this sermon by Pastor Terry titled Patience from the series Character Counts. For more info, please visit creekside.org. Well, if you would, take your Bibles. As you can see, we're talking about patience today. I'm convinced that uh, with the fast ways of our society, so many people have had their fuses shortened, and it takes very little to set us off nowadays. As a result, many, many of us, many people don't have really a high patience quotient in their lives today. And as we read the scriptures, you're going to see where throughout, the, especially the New Testament, and I'll give you an Old Testament example today, where God is so patient, and God calls us to be patient. Um, we're doing the study, Character Counts, out of uh, Galatians chapter 5, 22, 23, where it says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, is what we're looking at today, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control against these things. There's no such law. So we want to look at these character things. Mark chapter 10, uh, we're going to start there. This is kind of where I changed a little bit yesterday, and we'll get back to it, but I want to read it at the beginning. Mark chapter 10, look at verse 17. <clears throat> Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. The context is, is important, as it is in with most of the scripture. But it's easy to miss what's taking place here, some of the pathos and the emotion, if you don't remember and know that Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. And it says in a number of places in the Gospels, it says, and Jesus set his eyes toward Jerusalem which meant he knew exactly what was going to happen there. He's going to die. He's going to give his life for you and me. So he's, he's knocking at the door now, and I want to read a couple of stories to you. It says, Now as he was setting out on a journey, a man came up to him and knelt down before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus looks at him and goes, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud. Honor your mother and your father. He said to him, well, teacher, I, you know what, man? I've, I've, I've aced the test since I was a kid. I got this religious gig down. It's, it's, it's happening in me. And then this poignant statement, Jesus, it says, and if you like to highlight in your Bible, underline this. Then looking at him, Jesus loved him. I want you to see the three things, looked at, loved, said. You lack one thing, go sell. All that you have and give to the poor so that you can have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Uh, Jesus didn't say this to anybody else, but that's because this was the issue. This was the big heart thing that this young man had to deal with. And what does it say? It says he was stunned. He was stunned at this demand, and it says he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Skip ahead, if you would, to verse 42. Same chapter. Jesus says they, were, they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, heading to Jerusalem now, again, there was this large crowd and disciples around him, following him. It says, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was a blind beggar. He was sitting by the road. And when he heard that it was Jesus, the Nazarene, see, his word, his fame had, had, had spread. Everybody knew who he was. And it says he began to cry out, Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. 
but this is interesting, isn't it? Many people told him, shh, keep quiet. Quiet down. But what does it say? But he's crying out all the more, have mercy on me, Jesus, son of David. And here's another thing that I highlighted yesterday. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man and they said to him, have courage, get up. He's calling for you. <laughs> I love that shift. Quiet down. Jesus is busy. Well, come here. Let us help you. Uh, take courage, brother. We'll get you there. What a shift. He threw off his coat. He jumped up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus answered him and said this. Here's another one I underlined. What do you want me to do for you? You, you know impatient people can't ask that question, right? If I'm in a hurry, I don't ask anybody, what can I do for you? Because I know what that means, especially if they know I'm a pastor. Rabboni the blind man said, I want to see. Well, go your way, Jesus told him. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he could see and he began to follow Jesus on the road. This idea of patience in the New Testament, it's really a, a very common theme that it's easy to blow by and brush over when you're not looking for it. But in, 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 when Paul wrote these words, the fruit of the Spirit, he really divided those nine things into kind of three groups with overlapping application. First group that we've talked about, love, joy, peace, these are really directed of attitudes towards Christ, that our, our, our first love is for him, our chief joy is found in him, and our peace, our deepest peace in life comes because of him, because we can now have peace of God and peace with God because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. But now we get into the second grouping that we're going to look at uh, for the next three weeks. And it begins with patience. While the other ones were kind of God-focused, these are really horizontally focused toward men and women, the people around us. They're social virtues. So rather than having an ultimate God focus, although that's important for that to be part of it, it's really a people focus. This idea of patience, if you want to just kind of get some, put your mind around it, 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 it it's, it's the idea of someone that takes a long time to boil over. They have this spirit, somebody said, I love this, the spirit of a long temper. Not short, but a long temper. Now hear me, when I talk about patience today, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you, it really means that you don't give away to bitterness and wrath when you can use it. But it also doesn't mean that you're this soft touch where people can just walk on you and do whatever you want. That you don't establish and understand the importance of having healthy boundaries in your life with the people around you. You can be very patient and still have very healthy boundaries. Some people mistake that. Uh, in the New Testament, there's two words. I'll just impress you with a couple of Greek words really quick. But there's two words for it. A hupomone, which is endurance. When, whenever the word hupomone for patience is used in the New Testament, it means endurance. How we face and deal with the circumstances and issues that life brings our way. And the second word is makrothumas. Makrothumas, when the word for patience is that word, 
It is always in respect to people and how we deal with people and how God deals with people and relationships. Early church father Chrysostom saw it as the spirit of one who has the power to take revenge but never does. That's kind of the ideas behind patience. I want to look at just three aspects of it this morning. There's patience that we can experience in circumstances. God is very patient. He's long-suffering. Those two words are interchangeable depending some of your translations here this morning. Where I read patience, it might say long-suffering. Have you noticed how God is so different from us in this way? That when you read the scriptures, he is long-suffering and very patient. That's his character. And that's why he wants to develop that character within us. But here's the deal. I don't know about you, but this is what I've learned about God. He is just a little bit slower than I am. My expectations are to move a little quicker. But I'm also learning that unless you learn to adjust to his slower way of working things out, you'll find yourself easily losing your patience. You'll become a very impatient person, and you'll have a struggle with how he wants to work things out in your life. And ultimately, that's the very thing that can cause so many people to begin to shake their fist at God because, well, he's long-suffering and he's patient and his process is a lot slower than ours. On Friday morning, our guys, we've been studying through the life of David. And as I was reflecting, I said, there's a great illustration of patience in terms of our circumstances through his life. And most of us, many of us are familiar with David as a young boy. Um... He grew up and he was a shepherd boy for his father, kind of the forgotten, the runt of the family. Well, the the nation of Israel said, we want a king, and God finally relinquished and said, okay, I will do that. So he sets up and he chooses this man who had a lot of some of the greatest potential in the Bible. His name was Saul. And in 1 Samuel chapter 10 and 11, we see Saul, God appoints him and God anoints him as the king of Israel. And within a short period of time of being the king of Israel, he starts disobeying. He starts acting on his own volition. He doesn't pursue God. He doesn't lead the people to God. And by chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, God says, you're done. You are not going to be my king. You've blown it. Interestingly, he doesn't remove him. He just tells him, you're not going to be the king, but we don't know when it's going to end. Chapter 16, we see David. It says that God's looking for a man after his own heart to be the king to replace Saul. So he sees David. He goes after David. And in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, he appoints and he anoints, which means to set aside Saul to be the king. David is probably, most scholars believe, around 15. So he's this young boy, full of potential, heart for God. But he doesn't get to become the king at that age and at that time. Now you go to chapter 16, we see David, the story of David and Goliath. Uh, I mean, excuse me, 16 is when he's anointed. Chapter 17 is we see the story that many of us are familiar with, David and Goliath. What happens? Well, uh, there's this, this, this behemoth of a man. He's over nine feet tall. His armor alone weighs 100 pounds. He's been terrifying and, and uh, attacking and vilifying God's people and calling and saying, you know, uh, talking down God before them. And all these people are just afraid. All of God's people, the nation of Israel, are afraid of him. And they're hiding, and they're scattering, and they're running. And all of a sudden, this David shows up just to give some stuff to his brothers. 
And he looks at me, who, who, who's doing anything about this? Oh, man, we're all afraid. So he basically says, listen, I'm going to take care of this. So what does he do? He takes his slingshot. After a lot of discussion and other things happen on the backdrop of the story, he takes his slingshot and a little rock that he'd used to care bear, kill bears and lions and protect the sheep. He takes it out, fights Goliath, slings it around, one shot, hits him in the head, and kills him. I believe this is the first recorded splitting headache in the Bible, okay? <laughs> but that's what happens. David does that. Now, what's interesting is that's chapter 17. He's just taken on this foe of Israel, but he's still not going to be king. So guess what happens now? King David, uh, King Saul gets really riffed and miffed at him. So he begins to, over a short period of time, he gets crazy jealous and he begins to chase David all over for years. David is on the run. He lives in caves. He lives wherever he can find a place. He begins to gather these mighty men around him that run with him. And this takes place for years and for years it goes on because of this crazy, jealous king. Can you imagine living years with this understanding that you're supposed to be the king, but you're actually getting followed by, pursued, trying to be killed by the present king that God says is you're going to replace? Those are not good circumstances. Those are not a pleasant circumstance. And they take place for years. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 24, what's interesting is we see what David does. 1 Samuel 24. We probably figure anywhere from four to six years this whole thing has been going on. 24, it says... Now, when Saul came, what happened is, is David and his men, you know, they've been cave dwelling, they've been living in caves, they come to this place called the cave of En Gedi, they're deeply entrenched in it uh, to get some rest and partially probably to also hide. They're in there, hiding out, resting, and guess what happens? It says, when Saul came to the sheep pens along the road, a cave was there, and he went in to relieve himself. You know what that means, don't you? Okay. The Bible said it. I didn't. Just, you know, you'd make sure that you... There's no original Hebrew language that means anything else but what it really means. Now, it says David and his men were staying in the back of the cave. So it's dark. So his men said to him, Look, this is the day of the Lord that he told you about. I will hand over your enemy to you so you can do with him whatever you desire. What they're saying is, kill him. His back is to you. He's busy with his stuff. <laughs> then David got up and he secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. But he didn't kill him. Afterwards, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the corner of of Saul's robe, he said to his men, I swear before the Lord, I would never do such a thing to my Lord. Speaking of Saul, the Lord's anointed. See, the Lord had not set up for David to take over yet. David understood that. And he says, I will never lift my hand against him again since he is the Lord's anointed. With these words, David persuaded his men <clears throat> Excuse me, David persuaded his men and he did not let them rise up against Saul. And then Saul left the cave and he went on his way. 
I love that. Did Saul really deserve to be called God's anointed? Did he even act like God's anointed? No. But here's the principle. Here's the key. David chose to see and to define his circumstances as God had defined them. Because God had said in 1 Samuel 10 or 11, he said, this is my anointed king. And David said the very same thing. This is David. This is God's anointed king. And until he takes that anointing, that setting aside off him and puts me in there, I'm not going to mess with it. You have to understand, it's going to be David probably is on the run for anywhere from 12 to 15 years from the time that he is set aside to be king until he becomes king over all of Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Those are not easy circumstances to live with in loved ones. But he decides that he's going to define it as God defined him. Listen, when everyone is hyper around you, catastrophizing, they're worried. Are we going to make it? You're nervous. What's going to happen? There'll always be those who have this patient faith that says, it's all right. I can wait. I can get through this. I can hupomone through this because God is in charge and he's patient and I'm going to be patient with my trust for him. I am convinced that we are called loved ones to be able to handle these circumstances, these tough times and troubled times with that kind of a patience. I know, let's get practical. You got bills to pay, a leaky roof. People are not performing around you the way they should. Old car, no money. How are you responding? People with a touch of God on their life, I am convinced as we grow in that and understand it, will grow in our waiting patience where we choose to see him and that we begin to define the things that we're facing as he defines them. Because a real move of God in a person's life is really only seen when they're under trial, when they're going through tough times and circumstances, and they can still stop and they can wait and say, I'm going to trust Jesus in the midst of this. Where they have this patient trust and faith in the patient God who's at work in them. I don't know where you are today, but do you have that? Or as we said, are, you, are we catastrophizing and, whoa, what's going on? Our world needs to see people that have patience and peace in the midst of all the panic and chaos going around them. And I believe God places every one of us where we are to bring that to wherever we go. How about this one? Patience with people. Now remember the word, um, the other word that we're using for patience, most of the time in the New Testament, it focused on with people, not circumstances. Why is that? Because probably our greatest rub in life comes from the relationships around us. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. He says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling that you've received with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Accepting one another in love. Remember we said that the eight, the eight fruit of the Spirit after love, they're really all distilled because of our love. 
Because I love, I'm going to be more patient. Because I love, I'm going to be kinder. Because I love, I'm going to experience more joy. They really get distilled from that. And he says, diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit with the peace that binds us. Don't we all know people that are easily agitated, irritated, and overly impatient? Don't they, you know, and, and when you're around, when you get to know those kinds of people, you know that they're going to let everybody else know about it, that they're agitated, that they're upset. They're going to do it through grumbling and griping and through Facebook. <laughs> yeah, I, I still don't get why people do that, but, I, you know, you go to a private friend, but, but, but they'll blow up or they'll walk out and everyone knows, man, they're done and they've had it. And there's others that, you know, they don't show this agitation as much as more inwardly, but we're churning to varying degrees with the stress within us, wishing that people would just get on with it so we can do our thing. There's this kind of impatience with people. There's really two kinds of people. There's thermometers. There's those who merely register what is going on around them, like a, a, temp, like a, a thermometer that rises with the temperature in the room. If the situation is tight and pressured, these people will register tension and irritability. If it's stormy, they'll register worry and fear. But of course, if it's calm and quiet and comfortable, they register relaxation and tranquility. But see, God says, I want you to be people of patience and to grow in this so that in your circumstances, when you're in relationship with people now, you begin to bring this patience with you. You become not a thermometer, but you become a thermostat where you regulate the atmosphere. They're the mature ones. They're the ones that become change agents who seldom allow the situation to dictate to them, but they go in and they're difference makers. Don't we know people like that? Man, when they walk into the room, you go, oh, oh we're either going to have an explosion or an implosion, you know, and it's just difficult and they can begin to suck the life out of the room or whatever thing is taking place. And then there's other people, they can just come in and you go, wow, there's a sense of peace. There's a sense of we're going to get to this. We're going to take care of it. See, that's what thermostats do. And we're going to be either one of those. We're going to regulate or we're going to react to what's going on around us. And as we become impatient, why do we do that? It's because we're inconvenienced. So what do we do? We snap, we growl, or we ignore the people around us, our family and our friends or people on the road. Why is this? Well, it's usually because our world has been distracted. It's been inconvenienced. And here, you know what? We're all, many of us are like this. I am. I want to be in control. But we all know this. Being in control is what? It is an illusion. You have little control of very few things. The only thing that I know I can control is me, 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 me how I react, how I respond, how I live my life. And even then, I'm like a pinball sometimes that has to bounce off of a lot of circumstances and people. And you're the same way. I mean, think about dinner with your kids. I mean, our kids growing up. You know, they, we had one of the sons, our youngest. His name is Jamie. And, um, and, and he would spill his milk all the time. And every meal, it seemed like. You know, and I go, what do you, what do, do you always have to spill your milk? or drink, or whatever it was. Well, yeah, Dad, it's just so fun to watch you go ballistic and have to pick it up every time. 
I mean, it's just how I kind of work my life when I come to dinner right now. No, he didn't say that, but sometimes we act like that. See, they don't like it any more than we like cleaning it up or picking it up, do we? But people say, well, you know, it's just not natural to be patient for most people. And you're absolutely right. That's why it says here, part of the fruit of this precious, beautiful, delightful, delicious spirit is simply what? That it comes from the Spirit of God as we allow ourselves to remain connected to Him and walk with Him and work through us. It is a supernatural work of God that has to happen and take place in our life because we're inviting the presence of God into us. See, when, I, when you're filled with impatience, ask yourself, what am I worried about? What's making me anxious? And you want to begin to connect the dots to understand it. Because I believe that often will help you break through the process where, where you don't become a catastrophizer, where everything doesn't become a, a, a upheaval in your life. But here's the thing, because the idea of patience means that you have this long spirit, long spirit of a temper, you don't react and get mad quickly and easily. So the first thing you have to do is recognize that, well, you're a little bit angry. But here's the next step, and this is where it gets hard, is you can recognize that the anger is not some other person's responsibility. Your anger is not the responsibility or the, the reason for the circumstances going on around you. You have to take responsibility, loved ones, for your anger in that moment, or you'll never grow as a patient person. If you don't take responsibility for your anger and impatience, then you'll begin to live to be a slave to it because it will be like this animal that just feeds on that and gets bigger. What do we do? We use phrases like, you make me so mad. Who's responsible for that phrase? I am. You are. The truth is, you don't make me mad. The truth is, my circumstances don't make me mad. I make me mad. You know what makes me mad usually? It's because I'm fearful. I don't know what to do. So I get mad. I get hurt. And so what's our natural tendencies? We want to blame. But the choices that I make are the things that really cause anger to happen in my life. And that's why we have to learn to see people and our relationships as God does. And that our patience is continually growing in our love for the people around us because that's what Christ did. And I want you to see Jesus now, the patience of Christ. Because God has this attitude and this characteristic of love and patience. He suffers. The idea, it says that he suffers a long time. Thank God we're not God. Otherwise, I would incinerate and smash much more quickly than God ever would. But it says that he's long-suffering. And get this, he suffers and he bears with our sinning, our rebellion, our apathy, our rejection, our unconcern. And here's the key. The reason that he hasn't come back yet is because of that, because of his great love for humanity. 
2 Timothy 3, 9 and 15 says this, that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. You know, people sitting, well, where's God? He's on vacation. He's busy. What's he doing? He's up on the heavenly veranda, not caring about anything. When's he going to come back? When's he going to do something? That's not true. Here's his reason. He is patient toward us because he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance, come to a relationship with him. Now, regard the patience of our Lord as an opportunity for salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. So all of a sudden now, we've got the two, kind of the, two of the key players of the New Testament kind of riffing off each other. And he says, listen, just like Paul talked about this patience, I want you to see it in the God who loves you and is patient with you. This is a major characteristic of God, his character, and it should fill us with gratitude every day, that every day we have a family member, every day we have a friend that doesn't know Christ, we can say, thank God that you love these people enough and you haven't come back yet because, well, you want to give us opportunity, you want to use your spirit to walk with them, speak to them, and to reach them. It's this incredible grace-patience continuum of God that we get to experience. 1 Timothy 1.16 says, But I receive mercy for this season so that in me I was the worst of them. Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul uses himself as an example to really exemplify the great magnitude of Christ's patience toward us. Previous to this, in, in these verses, he talks about that he was a sinner that blasphemed. He inflicted injury on the saints. And he acted out all of these incredible uh, debauched deeds. He says, I did it with this wicked, malicious, arrogant, violent, haughty attitude about me. Paul's aim was simply to put a highlight on Christ's patience and forgiveness, basically saying that if God can save me, if God can do this in me, and if he was patient to work with me, he can do that with anybody. And so what does Paul do? We get to see his patience in his writing as he says numerous times, be patient with one another, be patient with people, be patient as a leader. Why did he feel so strongly? Because that's what he experienced. He experienced the patience of God that ultimately, he says here, led him to salvation. See, aren't we always in a hurry? We want to get here. Why? So we can wait. We want to move to the fast lane. Why? So we can wait some more. Our culture is in a hurry. But Jesus is always doing things along the way to what? As I read just two stories to touch people. And I want you to see the heart of Jesus there in his patience. Why does the Lord stop for these two guys? One's rich, one's poor and needy. The followers around him, his brain trust, his disciples, his closest people, his ministry team, they're saying, stop we got to keep going. Get this guy back. Quiet him down. we got to keep Jesus moving to Jerusalem. We've got meetings to hold. 
We've got stuff going on. Man, this is, Jesus is heading to the cross. This is the most significant day in his life. This has to do with the redemption of mankind. We can't stop here. That's what all the religious people are saying. I was wrestling yesterday. I mean, I was yesterday after a couple of meetings. I come home and went to Isaac's game, our grandson, in the morning and um, had to come home. I had a counseling appointment and then I uh, come home and I had to, like I said, I had these ideas that I wanted to kind of rework for today. And I'm sitting there, we're doing my work. Trina's trying to kind of keep Isaac out of the upstairs where my office is and finally he just comes in and he goes, hey, Papa, Papa, can we wrestle? That's what he always says. That's all I do with him. I just wrestle with him. You know, I just throw him down and go on the bed and just wrestle. And at first I told him no and no and no. And then finally I'm worrying about, Jesus stopped. <laughs> all the religious people said we got meetings and get ready for stuff, but Jesus stopped. And, uh, and I stopped and I wrestled, beat him really bad. But I love that kid. Why does Jesus stop? It's because of his heart. He stopped because he knew we needed salvation. And every one of us that have responded to Christ know that day that you sensed the love of God. I don't know how much you're like me, and this is why this message is so confronting. I don't like to stop. I like to get in. I like to get going, and I like to get there. Point A, point Z, let's get her done. You'd think I would have learned this lesson sooner because I told you my grandfather, the most significant person in my life growing up, would come to my games. He was my audience of one in the crowd. He would take me and uh, do things with me. You know what's funny? When I got a little older, he would take me and Grandma, Grandma Riley, Grandma Ruth, trips, day trips. My, my grandpa, the reason I loved him so much, I think, is because he was a, a moseyer. You know what a moseyer is? They just mosey, very patient. I would do stuff, and he'd just be patient with me. So, we're, you know, we'd go, and after about, I don't know how long, 30, 45, whatever it was, he'd stop. Let's take Grandma out. She's going to stretch her legs. Okay, whatever. I want to get there, even as a kid. Wherever I wanted to get there. He'd get back in, we'd go, another 35, 40, matter, whatever it was. Oh, we're going to pull over, we're going to stretch Grandma Riley's legs. Oh my goodness, what's going on here, you know? <laughs> and he would just, you know, if, if we, the longer the trip, the longer we would go. We'd go into stores and walk around for 15 minutes, get back in the car, keep going. That's what we would do. The only thing that really made it palatable to me is that over, probably by the third or fourth time, is I'd start to get a burger or ice cream cone or something good to eat. Or sometimes he'd buy me a little gift just to play with in the car. But I, I never forget, you know, that's why I love Grandpa. He was just there. He just moseyed. I think that's the reason why this story means so much to me today is because Jesus makes a decision to stop. The man can't see him. This man has nothing to offer him. Nothing. 
Jesus has everything he's got to do. He's got the press and the pressure of the cross and taking on the sins of humanity. But Jesus stops. He doesn't stop here to impress anybody with a, oh, you know what, I'm heading to Jerusalem. I think I'll kind of sneak in one more miracle in case people haven't seen it. Everybody knew what he was about and how he was doing. He does it because what does it say? He sees. He sees. And he hears. He sees. And he hears. We live in a world that's always in a hurry. It's in a hurry to get somewhere. Oh, does that conviction fall on me? But so often we're really going nowhere, but we're always in a hurry, hurry, hurry. You hurry. You get there. You wait. You stop. And then you wonder, where am I going? And you hurry. But you're not going anywhere. You hurry. Then you wait. And then you keep going. Then we stop. We'll go to the Golden Arches for a quick dinner. We'll stop and have a microwave meal. We have no time. We just can't get everything done. But we're always impatiently in a hurry. But then I see these stories. And I see the heart of God. And his heart for his people. And his holy patience. And I go, God, work that out in me. I was in Trinidad two years ago for a missions thing. We're busy doing ministry. This little boy, little brown-skinned Trinidadian boy, comes up to me. He goes, Mr., Mr., would you just talk to me for a minute? Mr. And I'm kind of looking around because I got all these people around. And, okay, do I stop? What do I do? Or do I just kind of, you know... (laughs) Because I'm busy. I'm important, you know. I look down at his face. Mister, could you just talk to me for a minute? And I did. But I think what I'm ashamed of is that I would even give it a second thought. See, the motif of Jesus' life is that patiently he sees people. Hey, here's a question for you today. How does God see you? Do you believe that he sees you? You know God sees the real you. And that doesn't bother him. He's not afraid of that. He's not put off by that. But when something grabs your soul, loved ones, and you are convinced that God sees the real you and he lives with that and he's patiently at work in you, can I tell you what's going to begin to happen? It'll change the way you see people. It'll change your patience toward people. Pioneering a church over in Manteca years ago. I had this guy, I worked with him, he was a teacher. His name was, I've told you stories about him, not for a long time, so some of you wouldn't know it, but I I called him Wild Bill. He was about 20 years older than me. He was an older guy, he was gruff, he was mean, um, he was cranky, he was just all of these things. He was a school teacher and we taught together and we played golf together, and he drank a lot of beer together with me. You know, I mean, he, the more he drank, the better golfer he got. I could never figure that out, but it happened because <laughs> we would be betting and all that. And, and I really loved this guy. He gave me one of the ultimate compliments. He said to me one time, don't worry, I'm never going to church, but if I did, I'd go to yours. And, um, <clears throat> and, I, and, 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 and that was always a very impressive thing for me. But one day he asked me this question. He goes, hey, I just want to know. 
Uh, am, am, am I really kind of a friend to you and a person, or am I just a project for your church? Hey, come on, Bill. Take it easy. We're friends, man. But then after I left, guess what? I had to, I had to do a little gut check. Because here's the deal. See, how you see people, if you see people as a project, then they're for your purposes. And what happens is, if they're just a project, you'll begin to become very impatient, waiting for them to respond to Jesus or come to your church or get cleaned up. Whatever the thought is that you have for them, if they're simply a project, you won't treat them like Jesus would where you see them as a person, as a valued friend not as a project. If you don't see people like Jesus, you'll begin to see them as interruptions. And when you begin to see people as interruptions, you'll become angry, resentful, impatient, no love. Our call is to see people as a person, each one as an individual that is significant and important and at the point that you miss that loved ones and you start seeing people in these other ways as a project or as an interruption, you will become very selfish and you will begin to marginalize the needy, the nerdy, the whatever thing you want to put on them. Or you'll see them as symbols for their function and what they do instead of who they are in the manifold grace of Jesus Christ. I was counseling yesterday with doing a premarital counseling with a sweet young couple. And in the course of it, I just had this thought that when you no longer see him or her, each other, as God's son and daughter, but you begin to see them primarily as husband and a wife, you have now turned them into a symbol. And with a symbol, if they represent this symbol of husbandry or wife to you, guess what? Then that's what you'll expect them to perform as. But if you will always see them as a son or a uh, daughter of God, it will always change. And it will, it will, you will see them in a way that you will treat them totally different because they won't be a symbol. You are taking care of God's son or God's daughter. So here's the deal today. Patience. How do you see people? How do you see people? Because that will determine probably the ability for you to have patience for people. Catherine Booth, co-founder of the Salvation Army, said this when she put her kids to bed at night, she'd tuck them away and she would say, good night, love. You were born to change the world. What do you see when you look in the mirror? What does God see? How do you see God seeing you? Because that will determine ultimately how you see people. If you see God as loving and patient and kind and gracious towards you when nothing is happening around you, but you just trust him, then you'll be able to do that with people when nothing is happening in and around their lives. Because you'll trust God who's slow and at work in everybody's life.